Alright guys, welcome back to Just a Girl in True Crime. I'm your host, Heaven, and as promised, we are doing the final part of the Susan Powell case. If you have not listened to the first one, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that one and then listen to this one so you're not confused. We're going to hop right into this because I think I just spent like three plus hours writing the rest of this research. Felt like my fingers were going to fall off. My neck hurts. But I promised you'd get it today, a back-to-back, and that is what it is, and that's what happened. So, just a little recap. In the first episode, we talked about Susan and Josh's marriage, his past relationship, um, his childhood, and we talked about how terrible of a husband he was, and let's not forget the pervy father-in-law. So, where we stopped at the end of part one, it's where Josh decided to take his boys, Charlie and Brayden, ages four and two at the time, camping in below freezing temps, and we're just going to start right from there. Alright, so later that Monday around 9 or like 10 a.m., the daycare provider for Charlie and Brayden contacts Josh's mom, Tarika, and his sister, Jennifer Graves, because the daycare was very concerned that she wasn't able to reach Josh or Susan since they haven't dropped off the boys yet, and she was wondering like, Alright, Susan's on time, very punctual, I didn't get a call, what's going on? Right, so Josh's mom and sister, they actually end up calling the police because they're very worried and they think something bad happened. The police ended up breaking into their house, worrying that they might be victims of carbon monoxide poisoning. When police got into the home, they actually find two box fans blowing on a wet spot on the carpet. And Susan didn't show up for work either. She was a no-call, no-show. And her job was like, that's not like Susan. Where is Susan? So, it is a very concerning situation. People are calling Josh. Josh isn't answering. And they're like, okay, they're not in the home. It's cold outside. Susan's not at work. Where did they go? Well, at 5 p.m., Josh returns home with Charlie and Brayden and is greeted by police who find that he had Susan's cell phone in his van along with her SIM card that was removed. Police also find in the vehicle (laughs) a generator, blankets, a gas canister, tarps, and a shovel. Now, I'm not no rocket rocket scientist here, guys, but I don't think you take all of that stuff for camping. I mean, you could. Don't get me wrong. I don't. I don't know why you would need a shovel. 
Um, but then again, I don't know why you would go camping in below freezing temps in the first place. That's pretty weird, right? When Josh was asked why he had Susan's cell phone or why the SIM card had been removed, Josh couldn't actually give the police a straight answer. Um, Josh was immediately taken into the West Valley City Police Department to be questioned. During his interview with police, Josh was asked why he wasn't answering the phone. His response to the cops were, Oh, I didn't have a charger. And he was trying to conserve his battery, which would make sense. But however, a detective did notice that Josh's phone was plugged in to a charger in the center console of his vehicle. So Josh, why are you lying? Hmm? I mean, if you're going to lie about that, at least hide the charger before you get to your house. Come on. <sighs> um, so, some officers actually ended, wanted to talk to the boys to see what they knew, like, if they remembered anything about that night, and they just wanted to see what they were, what they had to say. And what Charlie said, the four-year-old, was very eerie. All right. So police asked him, you know, who all went camping with you? Charlie said, me, Brayden, Daddy, and Mommy. Now, if you remember from the first part, Josh said he only took the boys camping because Susan cleaned up a red spot on the carpet and then she went to sleep. So he decided to take the boys himself. Now his four-year-old is telling him, no, we all went camping. And the police were like, okay, so Susan was with them. She wasn't home sleeping, like Josh said, in part one. But Charlie, who's four years old, guys, at this time, keep, keep that in mind, said that mommy didn't come back home with them. A few weeks later, Charlie's school teacher um, says that he claimed his mother was dead. Keep in mind, he only might be four. Um, but it is really hard for a four-year-old to make something up like that in their mind. Because I listen... And the reason I'm saying that is because I was listening to Paper Ghost, that podcast. Um, and this... In the first... Like the first season or whatever. Um... The girl who was three recalled her mom, like, being dead, and she saw it. And he said, you know, kids that young, their imaginations don't, like, expand, like, that far to that, and they just can't make it up. So that's what Charlie said. And that's a lot to think about at some young age. Chuck and Judy Cock would also later say that while at daycare, Brayden, the two-year-old, drew a picture of a van with three people inside, and he told his daycare workers that Mommy was in the trunk. Brayden's only two. 
I don't think it's, I mean, what would the two and four year old, what would they gain out of lying, first off? Tuesday, December 8th, 2009, at 11 a.m., Josh calls Susan's father, Chuck, to tell him that Susan is missing and that the police are going to do another interview with him again, probably to see if, you know, he adds things to his story or he changes his story completely, you know. At 12.44 p.m., Josh is interviewed by West Valley City Police Department by a detective named Ellis Maxwell. Um, Two news where I got actually a lot of information of what I'm reading. I got a lot of information from two news. Like, they did, like, a timeline. It took me the whole way from 2008. 2008 or 7 up to 2019. Um, so, two news. They actually obtained footage of um, interviews. There was like two of them. And each clip's about an hour long. And I've watched them. They're pretty crazy. But I'm going to break down the first clip and a little bit of the second clip. If you just don't feel like you want to watch them. So in the first clip, you can see Detective Maxwell walk into the room, concerned about cuts on Josh's hands. And you can see Josh sniffling, like, through his answers, and I believe he was just faking it, and this was completely an act. At the um, 5 minutes and 55 second mark in the video, Maxwell wonders why Josh wants an attorney. Now, yes, this does not mean you're guilty or anything, but if you didn't have anything to do, you know, with making your wife disappear, um, and you have nothing to be concerned about, why would you need one? Why couldn't you just tell them, like, you know what, I, I really don't know what happened to my wife, and just answer their questions? Um, and like I said, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think you need one, would you? Because I don't think I would if my significant other over here disappeared and I had nothing to do with it. And this was the conversation between Maxwell and Josh, and it goes as followed. Maxwell says, so you're telling me you don't want to come in here and talk to me and answer questions so we can try to figure out where potentially she might be. Josh responds, they told me that I should have an attorney because they don't know what's going on. They said I'm pretty much in over my head. Maxwell asks, okay, you, you're in over your head because your wife is missing. Josh says, because you guys are already trying to trap me on little things like the cuts on my hands for one. And that's what was... On the sec first clip. The second clip, another you can see like another officer walking in towards like the end of the video. And he simply says, Hey Josh, listen. Your story that you're telling us, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Later Josh was actually read his rights 
and is told he will be detained, but he is actually released later that same day. Um, and I think they actually, the reason they did that is because I actually don't think they actually had any evidence to physically hold him. And that's just my guess. I, you know, like how um, officers can only hold you for like, what is it, like 48 hours or whatever? I don't know if he was in there for 48 hours. But I think that's like the max they can do. So if they didn't actually have any evidence pointing towards him and all they know I mean, all they know is she was missing. I mean, come on, guys. She was murdered. We all know this. So they let him go. But the police do seize the family van. Okay. And that was the one Josh was driving. But then he actually rented a car at the Salt Lake City International Airport and he drove it, um, he drove it, and he put 800 miles on the car, returning into, returning it two days later. Nobody knows what he did on the drive. Maybe he got rid of evidence, but we honestly can't say for sure. At some point during his trip, he purchased a cell phone and activated it in Tremonton. That was definitely wrong. Utah. Near the Utah and Idaho border. Wednesday, December 9th in 2009. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> My husband's up and he just opened his scoops. Um, Wednesday, December 9th in 2009, the police executed a search warrant on the Powell home. They removed bags, boxes, and a computer. Um, this is what I'm assuming from Josh's house, because I swing back to this later. Police, um, also found Susan's blood, life insurance policies for $1.5 million, and a letter from Susan saying she feared for her own life. The police also find blood from an unknown male contributor, which I don't know if that was ever tested. I mean, I don't believe it was since I didn't find anything. Thursday, December 12th, I'm sorry, December 10th, 2009, police searched the remote Simpson Springs campground for signs of a campsite that Josh claimed he had been using, but police actually didn't find any evidence of camping in the West Desert location that Josh had described. I saw it said like person of interest, so I'm guessing Josh was a person of interest at this time. And Josh talks with two news reporter named Chris Jones. And this clip, it's what Josh has heard saying. I've been trying to figure out what I can do so I don't idle. Dealing with this repeatedly, I was just going to go in and get my kids. Well, Josh, you want me to tell you what you could have did? You could have talked to the police, but she didn't want to do that because you know you're guilty of something because you know you got rid of Susan. I know that. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows it. My husband knows it. And the police know it. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. He then asked, um, Jones then asked, 
how are your kids doing? And Josh responds, they've been doing good as far as I can tell. Jones then asks, you came home and then went camping. What can you tell us about that night? Josh replies with this, yeah, a lot of times I go camping with my boys. Not anything big. We just go overnight and we do some s'mores and stuff like that. So I just went with the boys. Okay, so Josh, you took the boys out in freezing temps who were two and four years old. Do you think that was a safe thing to do? Austin, shut up. <laughs> um... <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, I personally would not come out, go out in the middle of a blizzard and, you know, get frostbite potentially and uh, go, hey guys, you want to go camping? No, we're not going to do that. It makes no sense, Josh. And then it was said, I was planning on doing, he was planning on doing s'mores in the morning and like when they got home or whatever and on the way home he found out that people were worried about them and that they thought they were missing friday december 11 2009 snow halts the police search for evidence at the simpson springs campground in tokel county so i guess they you know took snowmobiles out and they tried to look again. December 12th, 2009, during the day, family and friends of Susan, including Josh and her father, Chuck, gather outside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Hunter Central Stake Center. The group sings hymns, prays, and begins a 24-hour fast in hopes of Susan's safe return. Josh can be seen tearing up at the event, but he doesn't. But he doesn't speak there. Chuck is concerned about the focus on his son-in-law. On the night of the vigil, Josh joins others in handing out missing person flyers to people attending a Utah Jazz basketball game. Monday, December fourteenth, in two thousand and nine, Josh hires himself a defense attorney named Scott C. Williams. Tuesday, um, December 15, 2009, Josh fails to attend a scheduled third interview with officers with the West Valley City Police Department. The police publicly, publicly announce this development saying that Josh is just getting in the way of police efforts to find his wife. Which makes sense. Two days later, so December 17th, two news among with the other local television stations are subpoenaed by the West Valley Police for footage of interviews done with Josh. The next day, Josh takes, takes Charlie and Brayden up to Palawapa. That's definitely wrong. I just wanted to say that. Washington. To stay at his father's house, Steve. I heard it was Steve or Stephen Powell, so I've just been calling him Steve. For the holidays. On Sunday, December 20th, 2009, family and friends 
hold um, vigils again for Susan, both in Utah and Washington. And then jumping the whole way to Sunday, January 4th, 2010, social media campaigns are launched to spread the word of Susan's disappearance. Tuesday, January 6, 2010, Josh and his brother Michael arrive back in the West Valley City to pack up their house. It was revealed by Josh's friends that he had been fired from his job. Okay, my mistake. I said in the last one, Josh didn't have a job. I really didn't think he did, but I guess he did, and he got fired, and he claimed that he wouldn't be able to keep the house. So he brought his brother Michael up to help him pack the house so he can move up to Washington. Thursday, January 29, 2010, West um, Valley City West Valley City Police Department serves Josh with another warrant to seize the van that he drove the night Susan disappeared. I don't know why they did that again, but I guess they did. Monday, February 15, 2010, the Cox family holds a press conference revealing that Susan had told family and friends that she might end her relationship with Josh by, the, by their 6th um, anniversary. Um, the Cox said that Josh had been physically abusive with Susan on at least one in the past. Josh's controlling behavior was also revealed, which we learned about in a little bit of part, more of part one than we did part two. The Cox family announces the creation of a non-profit, thank you, mm-hmm. Su- uh, the non-profit Susan Cox Pal, that just sounds weird to say, foundation. The foundation website says this. The Susan Koch Foundation was established in 2010 by Susan's parents with the help of friends and after an overwhelming response from people around the world, their emails, letters, and Facebook messages of support, sharing of other parents with missing children, questions of parents concerned about their children in potentially similar, similar situations, but without the but without the support we felt moved and that's when they decided to create the foundation which is nice thursday february 25th 2010 steve powell's neighbors put up missing flyers ribbons throughout the neighborhood and the cock family says this actually upset the powell children Saturday, April 10th, 2010, a volunteer search went out to the campground where Josh said he was, said he went um, the night, you know, she disappeared. So multiple people are going out to this campsite to see, if, you know, maybe the police just missed something and maybe we can find it. But when the volunteers went out, they actually found nothing as well. Wednesday, August 25th, 2010. The West Valley City Police Department released data related to the investigation of Susan's case. They had 6,850 man hours um, used to date 
for Susan. $150,000 cost to the department so far and five full-time detectives assigned to Susan's case. And this department actually only had 28 detectives. Friday, September 10th, 2010, Chuck, along with Ed Smart, the father to the kidnapping victim Elizabeth Smart, actually made an appearance together in Utah to, to promote legislation requiring those arrested on suspicion of a felony to be required to submit a DNA test. Monday, December 6th, um, still in 2010, one year after Susan disappeared, Josh and Steve made the made a claim that Susan ran away with a man named Stephen Kocher, a Utah. Okay, yeah, a Utah man who went missing in Nevada in December of 2009. The two claim. The two claim that the pair may have ran off to Brazil, where Stephen was serving as an LDS. Well, he was like serving on like an LDS mission, and they wanted to start a new life. There is zero evidence to back up any of these claims made by Josh. It's definitely false, guys. Spoiler alert. Friday, July 15, 2011, Josh and Steve announce plans to post parts of Susan's um, journals online, which, shady, that's wrong, invasion of privacy. Tuesday, August 9, 2011, a judge grants a restraining order after an altercation with Chuck um, at a Lowe's hardware department store later both were actually given anti-harassment orders against each other and they were were required to stay at least 500 feet away from each other thursday august 18th in 2011 the west valley city city police department announces a break in the case and that a search will happen in an abandoned mine shaft in Ellie, Nevada. The media was also invited along as crews searched, but two days they searched and the police found nothing. Tuesday, August 23rd in 2011, Susan's best friend, Kersey, Hellwell and Josh's estranged sister, which I'm pretty sure that's um, Jennifer, I almost said Susan, revealed Steve Powell's unmade sexual advances towards Susan. We talked about that in part one. And, you know, he denied these claims. He said, no, no, none of that was true. But he does contradict himself. Thursday, August 11th, 2011, the police do, um, like, more search warrants from Utah and Washington State at the Powell's home. So, I guess they did one at Josh's and then one at his father-in-law's, which that comes into play. 
and you know they took computers, boxes, and bags. In an interview with ABC, Steve Powell says this, I shared father-in-law and daughter-in-law, like a father-in-law, daughter-in-law flirting type situation with Susan and made some sexual touching or whatever, and I enjoyed it, frankly. But, remember he said he denied this stuff. That never happened. He never made any sexual advances toward Susan, but you just went to ABC and said, I did this stuff and I enjoyed it, frankly. Monday, September 12, 2011, in Utah's West Desert near Delta, police began a multi-day search in a popular rock collecting area. On September 14, 2011, con- continuing their search and thanks to cadaver dogs, police f- um, found human remains and recovered charred wood from the area. Thursday, September 22, 2011, the police arrested Steve Powell on child pornography charges and voyeurism charges as well. After the police found thousands of images of Susan dressing herself, the, um, the photos were also taken without their knowledge. And there were also photos of young girls and other young women. Two of the girls were his neighbors. Gross. And remember how I said he was obsessed with Susan? Well, yeah. So they found her used tampons, dirty cotton balls, toenail clippings from Susan. I And like little bags. Oh, and that's just so disgusting. I'm sorry. I think, I think I read somewhere there was, like, used dental floss, like, ew, but, you know, he's obsessed, he's crazy. Charlie and Brayden were then actually placed into the, um, placed into custody of the state, while police investigated if anyone else knew about Stephen's activities. Friday, September 23rd, 2011. The Koch family files um, a court thing to get custody, or like to get like temporary custody of them. And the judge does rule the temporary custody. And he also tells Josh that he can't publish Susan's online diaries. You can't do that, Josh. No, no. September 27th, the boys are... Like I said, temporary place with Chuck and Judy after Washington's Division of Child and Family Service files a child welfare action. And then the two days they spent in court, the judge then granted it to them. And on November 10th, 2011, Chuck files a motion in court asking the judge then to appoint a guardian to the boys so a custody investigation could be done. November 14th, a judge sets a hearing for the guardian. Um, 
the guardianship thing. Uh, oh, okay. January 31st in 2012, a website is created days before the custody hearing by Josh Powell with the help of some of his family, but it actually ends up being disabled. Uh, the site had claimed that Chuck and Judy abused the boys. Police also find some very disturbing things on Josh's computer, including stimulated child porn, beast, yeah, bestiality, I don't know what that is, and Oh, okay. My husband just filled me in. That's disgusting. Ew. And incest. I'm very concerned of how you know that, but I don't think I want to know. I'm just saying. <laughs> Alright. February 1st, 2012. Just a couple days before Josh does something terrible. The judge rules that seven-year-old Charlie, Charlie and now five-year-old Brayden will actually remain with Susan's family. The judge orders Josh to get a psychosexual evaluation by a court-appointed examiner. It's found that Josh has a narcissistic personality. You don't say. And the traits, you know, they say, shown by his inability to omit even small personal shortcomings or weaknesses. Whatever the heck that means. The examiner also finds that Josh has adequate parenting skills, steady, steady employment, and no criminal record. Okay, I just have one question for this examiner. Okay, they say he had adequate parenting skills. If he had great parenting skills, would you take your children out in freezing below temps to go camping, Mr. Examiner? I think not. And, you know, the examiner also recommends that Josh has supervised visits with the boys several times a week. Sunday, February 5th. The day Josh, this is a sad day, and this is a trigger warning. I'm sorry. I didn't even want to write this down, but I know I had to. Josh takes the lives of his sons, Charlie and Brayden, and himself. After a social worker named Elizabeth Griffin arrives at Josh's trailer with the boys, he ends up slamming the door in her face. She calls 911. And says Josh Powell has supervised visits with his children. And he turned around and slammed the door in my face. I guess there was some like type of miscommunication with the operator and her. Because they were like, what? Well, then she smells gasoline. So she like runs to her car. And she's like, you need to get somebody here right now. Something bad's going to happen. I know it, and she tried to get into the door, but she couldn't. 
Josh, who was 36 at the time, tries to kill them with a hatchet. Oh, yeah. A hatchet. But he fails to do so. So he sets off an explosion, killing himself and Charlie and Brayden. I read somewhere that the two boys were holding hands. And that's super sad because it seems like they were trying to comfort each other. When Josh's father was told this while he was in jail, he appears to be unconcerned by the news. And he actually gets angry at the people who told him what happened. Two weeks later, Steve revoked his Fifth Amendment right to not answer any questions about Susan's case. Since he was obsessed with Susan, they might think he actually knows what happened to her body and he's just not saying anything. After an investigation was done, it revealed um, they all died from carbon monoxide poisoning, but both boys had chopping injuries on their heads and necks. The fire was quickly deliberated by two five-gallon cans of gasoline that were found on the premises as well as evidence that the gasoline was spread completely through the house. Tuesday, July 3rd, 2012, a mime explorer says that there's a mime 30 miles away from where Josh said he was. And it had um, been filled with gas and it was actually burned. This comes a week later after court, stock, court docs were released that Josh had told a woman at a work party that the best way to dispose of a body is down a mine shaft. Because who's going to go down a mine shaft? Not I. Also, on that same day, the Salt Lake um, Tribune obtains an email from Susan to friends from June 28th. I'm sorry, June 2008. Susan wrote, Susan wrote of Josh. Um, she said he's constantly rude, yelling and barking commands at her. She mentioned him being controlling um even over like the very small amounts of money when she was actually the one who supported the family it was like he said you know you're the breadwinner breadwinner but give me all your money because i'm going to control it because obviously i'm a narcissist yeah And then it was like her like foreshadowing her own events where she wrote this. Every moment I step back and take stock of what I'm dealing with and it feels like a never ending cycle. But I'm too afraid of the consequences. Losing my kids. Him kidnapping me. Divorce or actions worse on his part. So, I feel like she saw something coming. You know, like, um, some people were, like, some people, like, dream about how they die. Like, in the Corpsewood Manor episode that I did, where, um, the guy woke his boyfriend up and he had a terrible nightmare. 
and he said he was shot four times, and he was actually shot four times. Yeah. So I think she for foresaw that. February 13th, Josh's brother, Michael, believed by many to help Josh was Susan's disappearance because he killed himself by jumping off a parking garage in Minneapolis, taking any secrets to the grave with him. During previous police interviews, it's discovered that Michael had abandoned a Ford vehicle in the Oregon wrecking yard. That vehicle was found, and at one point, it had human remains inside the trunk. Definitely think Michael was a part of this. May 14, 2013, the police search for um, Susan's body in Salem, Oregon, but they find nothing. July 1, 2013, the police announce the end of the active phase of their search for Susan at a press conference, but said the case is still open three and a half years after she went missing. They just really didn't have any further active leads at this point, so it was hard to go off of something. The police chief said, This without a crime scene, just circumstantial evidence and no body, successfully prosecution was not likely to happen. Because, you know, some cases, no, no body, there's normally not a case. I mean... It could be done, but it's very hard to prove. May twenty May twenty first, two thousand thirteen, the family, Susan's family, is awarded her estate. And Josh's one sister, I don't believe it's Jennifer. I believe he had another sister, and his mom tried to declare C Susan legally dead so they can collect on her life insurance. I don't think you can do that. July 13, 2015, Josh's dad was actually found guilty of possessing child porn, and he was 64 years old when he went to trial for explicit images of the two younger girls who I mentioned. They were 8 and 10, and they were taken from a bedroom window of his home in 2006 and 2007. August 21st, 2015, he was sentenced to five years in prison, but he was also given time served since he spent 17 months behind bars already. I think he should have got longer for child, longer than five years for child porn. That's me. I think everybody can agree that five years is not enough, but he gets what's coming to him. October 26, 2017, the police department say the computer they took from Josh's home is still locked. They managed to crack the first encryption um, of the drive, but there was additional security, and it actually kept the investigators out from obtaining anything from the machine. Police say the computer drives that belonged to Josh didn't contain useful information, and it's unclear whether his computer has any clues. I feel like if you crack the other security stuff on the computer, I will. Be I fully believe we will find out what happened to Susan, and it's 
all has to do with that computer. That's what I believe. July 11, 2017, Steve is released from prison, but in July 23rd of 2018, he actually died in the Takama, Washington Hospital. I almost said prison. The officers were aware that he was in the hospital, but they were told that he was recovering. Ed Trier, a spokesman for the sheriff's office, said at the time, I wish we could have had the time to talk, but I wish we could have had time to talk to him before he died because I fully believe he knows he's one of the key players in Susan's disappearance, whether he knew something. And now you, you know, you have Michael dead, you have Josh dead, and you have Steve dead. I believe all three were key players into it, and they all died. Josh killed himself, Michael killed himself, and Steve just died. Probably karma. But they took their secrets to the grave. So. Um, the next day, his daughter Jennifer talked to Two News about the death of her dad. She said she was shocked and saddened, but says it's in a different way. And this is what she told them. It's more of an emotion. It's more of an emotion of not sad that he's gone, but sad that he lived a poor life. July 27, 2018, Chuck said he wanted access to the West Valley police files in the investigation. Like two days after Steve died um he told reporter brian murphy i want access to all the evidence in all the case files so i can see everything i have the re- i have a right to them um and he's just like just give me that info give it to me there the cox attorney filed to get um, the files unredacted of the, yeah, unredacted of the police files. Um, January 2nd, 2019, Utah, Utah's cold case coalition received a tip that some of the mines in Utah's West Desert have not been searched and some were not searched thoroughly. And Oh, real quick, because I didn't write this down. Um, I believe the Cox family, they wanted to do a lawsuit against DCFS because they feel like they could have t- taken more precaution to protect their grandchildren. Um, and I think I read the police, not the police, the judge um, wasn't going to throw out the lawsuit. So, yeah, I, I mean, hey. But guys, that wraps up the case of Susan. They still have never found her body. And I hundred, I believe 100% that it is actually in a mime that they haven't searched yet. I believe Josh murdered her. Um, that night, I believe he put something in the food and made her get sleepy. And it was easier to do it that way. And that's why the two box fans 
were pointed toward a wet spot on the carpet. So yeah, guys, that's the case. Oh, it's about m almost midnight here, so I'm going to upload this so you guys can have it. Um, Wednesday's case, I think I'm going to do a case. I don't know if anybody's heard about it. I heard about it on Straight Up Evil podcast of Jessica Easterly because, whew, that's a whirlwind case. We already know what it is about, guys. Even though nobody was charged in it, we all... Y'all know what, who will do it. The spouse is always guilty. Always. But guys, that is it for this podcast. And I will be talking to you Wednesday. Bye.